0: All right, I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles. Hopefully there you have a Bible with you uh, at home or wherever you are watching this. And I'm going to invite you to take your Bible this morning and uh, open it to 1 Timothy. Book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2. 1 Timothy, chapter 2. Have you ever met someone who was cold, cold? And heartless not caring whether other people get hurt or suffer pain someone who looks down on other people and passes judgment on them rather than expressing sympathy and concern it's kind of a loaded question actually it's intended to be that way maybe you have watched someone else fall and thought to yourself well they should have been more careful or if they hadn't been so reckless, they wouldn't have gotten hurt. Maybe it's not a physical thing. Maybe you find out that someone is in financial trouble, and you think to yourself, or maybe even say out loud, well, they should have spent their money more wisely. Then they wouldn't be in this mess. Or someone gets involved in a relationship that ends badly, and you think, well, I could have told her that guy was no good if she had just listened to me. Now, the truth is that we all tend to be judgmental. And uncaring at times. And I don't want us to hear today's message and think about someone else to whom we think this applies. This message is for us. For each one of us. Now who is the one person that is always in a position to be able to say, I told you so? He could say this to every man, every woman, every child who ends up hurting and ends up suffering because of their sinful and foolish choices. Who is that? It's God, right? He could sit in heaven, he could look down at all the people on earth, every one of us, and he could say, I told you so. Every time we sin, every time it hurts, every time we fall, every time we lose out. And because... Uh, Or or rather, when when we become Christians, we trust in Jesus Christ who died for us. We're born again by the Holy Spirit who comes to, to live inside of us. And sometimes we can get, I don't know, we get this idea that we're now, because of our salvation and because of what God has done in our life that that we are now in that position to say I told you so to everybody else. After all, we know the truth, don't we? And we know that people's problems are caused by sin. We know that if they would just live God's way things would be better for them, right? I mean, if kids would listen to their parents and obey them, they would be safer and happier. If young people would wait until they're married to have sex, they would be healthier. They would enjoy a better relationship with their future spouse. If men and women would have babies together in marriage rather than out of wedlock, society would be stronger. There'd be less poverty, there'd be less crime, less drug abuse, and and all sorts of other things. We know how to fix things, don't we? If people would just listen to us, then this country, this world, would be a lot better off. And there's some truth to that. But there's a dangerous lie there as well. You and I know, I think, that Christians can be some of the most judgmental people because we have heard and known and believed the truth, and we can begin to think that somehow that puts us in that position to say, I told you so. And I think what was going on in the church at Ephesus when Paul sent Timothy there uh, is, 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 is a part of this. I'm going a little bit ahead of myself with that. I don't want to go too far there. But I think it's important for us to keep this in mind. what I want you to remember this morning is that God does not... He He is in a position where He could. He could say, I told you so. Every time. And He would be right. But He doesn't do that. He doesn't look at us and think, boy, if they just listen to me, boy, they're just not very smart. Or, you know... I. I, I, I keep trying to tell him, and they don't listen, and, and he doesn't he doesn't look at us with that kind of irritation or that kind of judgmental attitude that we often show. He's not cold-hearted, he's not uncaring. Instead, he's merciful and he's gracious. He sent his own son to 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 give himself to pay our ransom and free us from this mess that we have made for ourselves. Look with me at the second chapter of 1 Timothy. Because here we see this truth put so plainly. I mean, it's it's just, Paul lays it out as plainly as possible here. It's so plain that many people just have to make it harder to understand. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Let's pray again and ask the Lord's help to, to understand and rightly apply this very simple and yet very powerful passage of Scripture. Father, thank you again for giving us your word that we can read and meditate on and, and know. But more than that, I thank you for what your word says. That Jesus Christ is our mediator. He is the one who is able to go between God and man. And that it is through Christ that our ransom has been paid. Oh, I pray you'd help us today to simply marvel at your goodness Simply uh, take in this truth and allow it to fill our hearts and our minds that we might be uh, overflowing with joy, with awe and wonder as we think about what you have done on our behalf. And I pray that you would help us today to respond rightly to these truths. And If there's anyone listening to this message today who has never repented of their sins and trusted Christ, I pray that they would see in these verses of Scripture so clearly and plainly that the, the, the solution to their problem of sin is the person of Jesus Christ. That they would see that the provision has already been made. That they would trust you today and be saved. Father, we pray that you would work in us through your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now, we have to remember always when we read the Bible that chapter and verse divisions are, are not um, biblical artifacts. In other words, these are not inspired by God. Now, we just finished uh, just finished a series through the book of Psalms. And, of course, the individual Psalms are separated because they were written as individual uh, Psalms. And so, in that sense, we could rightly justify saying, well, One psalm completes and ends an idea, and the next psalm is a completely separate and new idea. And so when we were studying through the psalms, we had a pretty strong delineation from one psalm to the next moving through them. But now we're in a different kind of scripture, right? This is a different genre of scripture. This is a letter. And so letters, as you know, are written in continuous fashion. When you write a letter and I write a letter, we don't write chapter headings, we don't write verse headings. These have been added later to make it easier for us to read and understand and follow and find things. Um, And most of the time, the chapter and verse divisions are helpful. But what we have to remember when we're reading a passage of Scripture is, especially like this, that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, this is a continuation of what Paul was talking about in chapter 1. So that, that helps us because we have to keep that context in mind. We cannot put a, 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 a dark line, you know, some sort of a, a, a bar across the page at the end of chapter one and before chapter two, and make a dark line and say, now there's a break here. Because there was not a break when Paul first wrote this. It doesn't mean he's not moving on to new topics, but we have to understand there's a, there's a continuity as well. So it's important for us to keep that in mind. Remember what Paul had talked about in chapter one. He sent Timothy to Ephesus. For a reason, there were men and women there in the church who were no longer teaching right doctrine. They had become enamored with other things. Some of them, who may have been elders in the church, had made such a public spectacle of of rejecting the faith, the truth, that Paul had led the congregation to excommunicate them. Hymenaeus and Alexandria, he mentions by name. This is the background for what he is saying here in chapter 2. And it's very important for us to remember that. The subject of these verses, as we've noted here as we've read them, is prayer. He talks right there in verse 1, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. This is really the only um, command that is given so if if there's something in verses one through seven that we are called to do here it's prayer Paul Paul makes that clear so the subject of prayer is key here it's it's a it's a big part of what Paul's talking about. however he is still addressing and throughout the letter he is addressing the issues going on in the church in Ephesus and what is the? key foundational need of the church. It is the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what these teachers were toying around with as they were uh, 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 becoming enticed and enamored by other things. They were risking abandoning the gospel altogether. And Paul is, is calling them back, through Timothy, calling them back to the gospel and so as we go through these verses, you're going to see that, yes, Paul is talking about prayer, but we cannot miss that that what's really behind this is still that commitment to the gospel. Notice how he begins there in verse 1, the word, therefore. Again, that word tells us there's a connection back to what he has previously said. He is not he's not just isolating this from, something, from everything else. This is in context of what he has already talked about. The power of the gospel to save, the grace of God, the, the, the foolishness of abandoning the truth and turning to other things, especially back to the law. Paul says, therefore, I exhort. That word exhort is the same word that is used in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 3, and translated urged there in the New King James. Paul had urged Timothy to stay at Ephesus. And now he is urging him and the rest of the church to make a special emphasis of prayer. But why prayer? I mean, that's really the important question when it comes to interpreting this passage. Many people, when they read this, they'll take chapter 1 as Paul's introduction, and then chapter 2 is where he gets down to business. Chapters 2 and 3 especially explaining how the church should be run and talking about this as if this is some sort of instruction manual. Paul kind of, he, he, he gives a, maybe a, a cover page, you know, of a personal introduction to Timothy. And then after that, this is kind of boilerplate teaching. This is the basic stuff about the church. And Paul is just laying out um, what the church should be about. But again, we need to remember, this is a specific letter written to a specific pastor for a specific church undergoing specific challenges. And so we've got to see these instructions in light of them. Paul says here that the church needs to pray. But his main focus, his underlying foundational focus is still on the gospel. The good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, the power of the grace of God that Paul had experienced on the road to Damascus. And so while we can look at these verses and make some applications about the practice of prayer, that's not the primary point. The main point... Here of these verses seems to be that prayer in the church is to support the preaching of the gospel. Prayer in the church and and prayer in the life of the Christian is intended to support the preaching of the gospel. Now Paul is saying that we need to make prayer a priority. So that's one application here. Yes, prayer should be a priority in the church. Prayer should be a priority for you and for me as Christians. This should be something that we make a a, a a high high up on the list of of to do in our life. But Paul is saying more than that. That's what I want to see here. What he says is interesting. He says that prayer should be made. Notice the last two word or three words of verse one for men. It's not just prayer in general that we should be concerned about. Prayer that is offered up for all men is what Paul is concerned about here. But again, why should prayer be, and prayer for all men, be a priority in the church? Why must we pray for all men? These This question is really the key here to the rest of the chapter, or the rest of this passage. Why is it that we should be praying for all men? Well, Paul, I think, gives three reasons in verses 2 through 7. And the first, or verse 1, the first is this. Paul says that we pray for the good of the church and of the world. We pray... For the good of the church and the world. And when I say "for" here, I'm referring to the purpose of prayer, not the content of our prayer. I'm not saying that here's what should be on our prayer list. Pray for the good of the church. Pray for the good of the world. It's not what I'm talking about. Paul says in verse one that we need to offer up prayers for all men. And notice what he uses. He uses four different words for prayer: supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. And these, especially the first three of them, are essentially synonyms. And so we can't make too much of a distinction between them here. I don't think there's a lot of benefit there. Paul is simply emphasizing the importance of prayer to be made. And then in verse 2, he gives an example of what he means by all men. So prayer is to be offered up for all men. then it says, specifically for kings and anyone who is in authority. People who are in positions of government power. Now, it would seem to be pretty obvious when he says kings and those in authority that that's not inclusive. When he says all men, it means more than that. It certainly doesn't mean less. Even politicians need prayer. I'm going to slightly adapt a line from Homer Kent. Who would pray for politicians if the church did not? Who indeed would pray for politicians if the church does not? These people have quite an influence in our lives, don't they? That seems to be what Paul is saying in the second half of verse 2. In fact, most people interpret this that way. He says that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. One way to look at this verse is to say that all Christians want is to be left alone. All we, so we pray for those who are in authority that they would just leave us alone and let us do our Christian thing uh, without, without uh, opposition. But remember what we said in the context of Paul's letter to Timothy here. There is a good bit of, of, of conflict, of dissension in the church. We, we know that because in chapter 1, Paul says, verse 4 when you give heed to fables and endless genealogies, they cause disputes rather than godly edification. He says in verse 6 that they these people have turned aside to idle talk. So there is, there is a lot of idle conversation and there's a lot of uh, disputes and arguments that are taking place. There's conflict in the church. Unruly members of the congregation are arguing about pointless things and stirring up a lot of trouble. I don't think what Paul's worried about here is primarily government officials leaving the church alone. What he's concerned about here is Christians in the church getting together to pray for their leaders rather than fighting and arguing with one another. It's one thing that we've learned since. Spring of 2020, it's that our government officials have to deal with difficult and unpredictable situations. More than anything else, they need Christ. Sometimes we forget that's why we're here. Right? Why else would God leave us on the earth after we get saved? We have a mission a mission to preach the gospel to the lost, and that definitely includes government officials. So instead of braving about them, we should be praying for them. For their salvation. And get this, this is what I think Paul is saying. That when we do that, when we focus on praying for those people who are in positions of authority, praying for those people who are lost, we will be the kind of Christians that we ought to be, living quiet and peaceable lives. See, It runs contrary to the gospel. For for those of us who call ourselves Christians, if we are filled with strife, interpersonal conflict in the congregation, if we are filled with discontentment in our hearts, if we have anxiety and stress that we that we we, we cannot and do not respond rightly with, if we are filled with fear and there's a lot of fear in the world today a lot of fear in the church today as Christians we ought to be at peace within ourselves we ought to be at peace with one another And to the best of our ability, we ought to be at peace with our unsaved neighbors. Our lives ought to be characterized by godliness and reverence, not by selfishness or rude behavior or disrespect. I think that's what Paul is dealing with here. He recognizes that in the church of Ephesus, there were, were, were a lot of people who were focused on themselves. They wanted to be the teachers. They wanted to get the recognition. They wanted the acclaim. They wanted people to look at them as as being informed and understanding and intellectual. They wanted to have the attention. And as a result of that, they forgot the mission completely. Instead of preaching the gospel, they were arguing over the law. Instead of praying for the unsaved, especially their leaders... They were fighting with one another. And whatever gospel witness they had was lost. What is Paul doing? He is urging Timothy and the Ephesian leaders to return to a concern for the lost. And how do they do that? It's by praying for them. By praying for them. Have we lost our concern for the lost? Have we abandoned... Our mission as a church. Have you abandoned your mission as a Christian who has been called by God not just to go to heaven one day. but You have been called by God to share Christ and the gospel with your family, with your neighbors, with your friends, with your loved ones. Listen, there are a lot of people hurting right now In our community, there are a lot of people who are experiencing need right now. And I'm not talking so much about financial need. There are a lot of people who need someone who will care about them, who will show an interest in them, who will invest in their life, who will pour themselves into them and show them Christ. Have we lost that? Have we gotten so satisfied with just coming to church and being a part of the, the, the body here and, and and gathering for fellowship and worship and eating together and enjoying life together? Not None of those things are bad things. But have we gotten so focused on those things that we've forgotten that there's a world out there of lost people who need the gospel? You say, Pastor, how do we get that back? How do we get a fire back? How do we get a fervency back to preach the gospel? How do we get that that that... that that overpowering concern that will move us out of our, our comfort zone and into the world to talk to someone about Christ, to give us that boldness, we start by praying for them. It's through prayer that our hearts are changed to become like the heart of God. This is precisely what Paul talks about in verses 3 and 4. He talks about the heart of God. Notice what he says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now before we go any further, I have to comment on some of the controversy that surrounds this verse, and really this whole passage. When it says that God desires all men to be saved, a logical question for us to ask is, why, then, are all men not saved? I mean, who can defy the will of God? If it's God's will for men to be saved, then how can they not be saved? That's a really good question. And in trying to answer that question, what that has caused many people to do is to question whether, well, frankly, what it's caused them to do is question whether all means all. But if all means all in verse 1, it means the same thing in verse 2, it means the same thing in verse 4, and it means the same thing in verse 6. So we can't dissect this passage up and somehow come up with some explanation. This is what I said. I, I think people read this passage and it's so simple and plain and they have to complicate it. Because their theology doesn't allow them to simply read it and take it at face value. I don't want to do that this morning. If we come at this verse, verses 3 and 4, and we ask that question, well, Paul, why aren't all men saved? We're missing the point of what he is saying here. Because Paul is not offering us a systematic study of the doctrine of salvation. That's how many people approach the Bible. As if the Bible is a systematic theology textbook. And we read a passage, and it has to answer these questions for us. But the truth of the matter is, God's word reveals his truth in his way to us, and to whatever extent he chooses. Sometimes it doesn't answer all of our questions. People read this passage in 1 Timothy 2 as if Paul is giving a systematic study of the theology of salvation, complete with a review of the five points of Calvinism and an emphasis On the L or the I or whatever you want to call it here. We have to learn to focus on what Paul is actually saying and be content to limit ourselves to what he actually says, not what we wish he would have said. To that end, remember that Paul is urging Timothy and the Ephesians to pray for all men. Verse 1. Very clear there. Is anyone excluded from our duty to pray for them? Could we say, well, we can pray for most people, but there are some people for whom we should not or have no responsibility to pray. And I would say that is clearly misreading what Paul is saying. There is no way that we can find room for that in verse 1 and 2. To say, we can find an exception here. Some category of people, some people somewhere for whom we do not have to pray. No. We are to pray for all men, even the most grievous sinners in the world. And who are they? Greedy politicians and ruthless emperors. Even they need to be prayed for by God's people. We should pray. But why should we pray for all men without exception? The first reason, as I said, is because it is for the good of the church and the world. Right? We pray because it, it, it restores us to our mission. It's for the good of the church. But secondly, we pray for the pleasure and approval of God. We pray for the pleasure and approval of God. Again, this is not the content of our prayer not saying when you pray that we should ask God to make us pleasing to Him. Not that we shouldn't do that. That's not what Paul is saying here. We pray for the purpose of God's pleasure and approval. Paul says it very plainly here. Praying for all men is something which pleases God. It is a simple fact. Why? Because God desires all men to be saved. And to be saved is to know and acknowledge the truth. Now let me put it this way it is not our job to save sinners. It is not our job to bring men and women to the position where they will confess the truth and acknowledge the truth. Right? We cannot do that. It is not our job to figure out exactly how this salvation works. A lot of people, a lot of people approach the doctrines of Scripture that way, as if it's like a... Uh, it's a it's a machine that we could take apart and we could strip it down to its components and figure all the pieces out and then put it back together again and keep it running. Now these are things that God does. Salvation so, I mean, is something God does. You and I are never going to, to understand it completely. I don't think in all of eternity we'll understand the workings of God in his wisdom and salvation. It will always be a mysterious element to us here. It is not our job to figure it out. It is our job to pray for the salvation of all men because God approves of it. And in some way, that will always be mysterious. He uses our obedience in prayer to bring lost men and women to salvation. Why don't we see more people being saved in our church? Why don't we see more people coming to Christ, getting baptized, following his disciples? Why don't we see that happening? In one part, it's the sovereignty of God. He's in control of that, not us. We can't make that happen. On another hand, have we failed to be obedient in prayer? Have we failed to pray for the salvation of lost men and women to pray fervently and diligently and pray thankfully and pray uh, and intercede for them and, and plead for them? Is God uses our obedience in prayer to bring men and women to salvation. This ought to empower us. See, most of the time when we pray, we don't know God's explicit will in the matter. So we we pray for someone who is sick to be healed, and we should. We should pray that God would raise them up and heal them and restore them to health. And we shouldn't pray in a weak and and, and kind of wishy-washy way. We should pray for their healing. That's a good thing to do. But we never know what God is doing and desiring to do with their illness. Many people, many believers experience lengthy illnesses sometimes uh, suffering that lasts the rest of their, their entire life. And God uses it for his glory. I think about someone like Johnny Erickson Tata, who's, who's suffered her entire life, almost. The vast majority of her life, with, with terrible physical difficulties and multiple bouts of cancer and all the things that she's been through. And yet... Why has God not healed her of the the, the, the paralysis and all these other things? Why has God done what he's done with her life? It's for his glory. I don't know. We can't answer that. But it doesn't mean we should stop praying. Right? We should pray for those things. We don't know what God's will is. We can pray for financial needs. Someone has a financial need, and we pray that He would provide and we pray that God would would, 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 (coughs) pay the bills or whatever. But again. We don't know the kind of strengthening of faith and discipleship training that God is doing through a financial shortfall in someone's life. My point is simply that we don't know his explicit will when it comes to those things. But what we do know is this, when it comes to praying for the salvation of lost people, we can pray with absolute confidence that our prayers are in line with his will. Referring to God's desire for all men to be saved here, Harry and I just love the way he puts it, he said, I hope we believe that, that God wants all men to be saved. Harry says, I find that some of my brethren do not seem to believe it. They speak as though there were some men whom God has brought into existence for whom there is no possibility of salvation because they are not among the elect. cannot allow ourselves to get bogged down in petty arguments or speculations about things that God has not said. Rather, let us be about the business of praying for the lost that they might be saved. Believing that God truly desires for them to know him. This is true of your neighbor who seems unapproachable. It's true of your family member, the one who gets angry and hostile when you try to talk about spiritual things. It's true of your boss and your co-workers. It's true of everyone you meet when you travel around this world. All who will may come to Christ because God's desire is that all men would be saved and know the knowledge of the truth. So when we pray for them, we are praying, we are seeking the pleasure and the approval of God because it pleases Him. So the third reason for prayer is found in verses 5 through 7. We pray for the success of the gospel ministry. Paul said in verse, says in verse 5, there is only one way to be saved. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. There is only one way to be saved. Why? Because there's only one God. He's not the God of the Jews or the God of the Christians. He's not the God of the Americans, or the God of the British, or the God of the Indians, or the God of uh, of the Zimbabweans. Right? He, he is the God of humankind. He is the God of the whole world. He rules the whole universe. He is the God of every man. He is the one to whom every man, every woman, and every child owes his love, his loyalty, and his worship. But this one God is separated from man. By a wide gulf. That gulf is there because of sin. Before any of the Bible was written, before any word from God had been recorded, the only thing that men knew was what had been passed down word of mouth from Adam, our first father. There was a man who lived during that time. His name was Job. And Job didn't know much of the truth. But he knew this. He knew that there was a great gulf between himself and God. And he cried out for someone who would be able to go between. In Job 9 and verse 32 and 33, here's what Job says concerning God He is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together. Can you imagine? You or me taking God to court, sitting in court across from Him, so that we can we can question Him and and and, and He's forced to answer our questions. <clears throat> Job says it's impossible. He's not a man like me that I may answer Him and that we should go to court together. Verse thirty three. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay His hand on us both. Job recognized. This fundamental need that that all human beings experience, all human beings share this need. We need someone who is able to take God by the hand and grasp the hand of God. And at the same time, able to take man by the hand and grasp us by the hand and bring us together together. We need a mediator, someone who can bring us into fellowship with a God who is perfectly holy and without sin. Then we come to First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. And what does Paul say? He says, There is one God, and there is one mediator. This this thing that Job cried out for, not knowing about, but 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 hoping praying for, Job desiring to see someone, anyone, who could take God by the hand and take Job by the hand and bring them together. And Job says, this is what I need. Job knew he couldn't do it himself. He knew he was a sinner. And that was the problem. Paul says very plainly, a mediator has come and has bridged that chasm between us and God. It is the mediator, Christ Jesus. And uh, it's interesting, you'll notice, in, in, if you're looking at a New King James, um, in verse 5, it, it, it says the one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. The word the is not there in the original language. There's no article. And so what it means, essentially, is a man. It's emphasizing Christ's humanity here, not that he was a particular person, but that he was a man. It had to be a man. Now, why did it have to be a man who could take God by the hand and take Job by the hand and bring them together? Why did it have to be a man? This is so good. Because of verse 6, Jesus Christ Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all. What did Jesus do? Jesus, who was the eternal Son of God, co-equal with the Father, God of very God, he came down to earth, he took on human flesh, he did not give up anything, he added to himself human flesh. So that he was no less God than he had always been for all of eternity. And yet, he was fully man at the same time. You say, well that's hard to understand. I know, I agree. The Bible says exactly what happened. The Son of God came down to earth and he, he became a man. And so here he was, fully man. Human. So Paul says he was a man the mediator is a man a unique man the son of god and he offered himself up as a ransom for all what is a ransom a ransom means to pay for it to pay the penalty of sin and how did he do that by his death on the cross paul here's referring to the death of christ christ died for all. He paid, gave himself a ransom for all. Same word that Paul has used throughout this passage. All men for whom we are to pray is the same, all men God desires to be saved. And lo and behold, Christ died as a ransom for all. What is the significance of this? No one is to be excluded from our prayers, no one is to be excluded from the preaching of the gospel. As J.N.D. Kelly put it, Since Christ died for all men without any kind of favoritism, that makes it obligatory to pray for them all without distinction. It is absolutely wrong for us as Christians to refuse to pray or to neglect to pray for some people if we deem them unworthy of the gospel. We don't get to pick and choose who to pray for any more than we get to pick and choose who gets saved. God is the one who has acted to bring salvation down to man through Jesus Christ. And we who have received this gift of grace are not in any position to limit who else may receive it. This is why I said we don't get to look down on someone else and say I told you so. We who have received the gift are then to freely distribute it to all, as we pray for all men. This is what Paul comes to in verse 7 in the last verse of this passage. He says that it was for the testimony of Christ, the gospel, that he was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles. What does this say about what was happening there in the church in Ephesus? Well, I think that this church, there were some who felt the gospels were only to be preached to Jews. Paul's commission, though, was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul, by his very commission on the road to Damascus, his very call from God, had received the call to go outside of the Jewish nation to preach the gospel to all men. And so Paul's own ministry is a renunciation of this view that says, Only those who are worthy should hear the gospel. Only those who are are good or righteous or upstanding people can be saved. This is where the problem of going back to the law comes in. Because those teachers in Ephesus were trying to apply the law. Be good enough and you can be saved. Be a righteous person and you can be saved. And Paul says, no, 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 no. We don't get to limit the gospel to those we consider righteous to those we judge to be good enough or worthy enough Paul says we pray for all men and we preach to all men if the gospel is to be preached for all i right, think about this god desires all men to be saved christ came and gave himself a ransom for all the gospel is to be preached to all men then how can we refuse to pray for all men. This is what drives our prayer in this passage. This is all, this right understanding of the gospel is what drives us to pray. Because God has chosen that through the prayers of his people, the gospel would be powerful to draw sinners to himself so they might believe and be saved by his grace. So what are we waiting for? what's keeping you today from praying obediently for men and women to come to the knowledge of the truth to be saved? Are you too busy? Are you too tired? Are you too distracted? You say, well, there's other important things going on here in the church. There's problems, there's issues, there's conflicts, there's difficulties. The quickest way to resolve the problems in the church is to be about our father's business. To start praying for the lost that they might hear the truth and be saved. We may not be struggling through the same struggles the church at Ephesus had. We have plenty of our own. But regardless of our circumstances and how they might differ from those churches in history, we serve the very same God. And his heart is still for saving lost sinners. But if they don't come through the one appointed mediator, they cannot come to him at all. How else will they be saved if not through Christ? How will they hear the truth if not from us? How will they believe if we are not willing to pray? Let's pray diligently. They would come to Christ and believe. Father, thank you this morning for your grace. Your grace is more than enough for our need. Your grace is inexplicable, It's, it's beyond our comprehension. We simply cannot understand the depth. Of your grace, we cannot understand that, that that free offer and how it is that we could come to be recipients of your goodness and your salvation. I pray that you would stir up in us a heart for the lost for all men. Oh, help us to see our neighbors. Help us to see our neighbors. Really see them. As men and women and children who are living in rebellion against you. Whose lives are dominated by the power of sin. Who need more than anything else that saving grace to come pouring into their heart. Overwhelming them. Transforming them. Making them trophies of grace. Father, teach us to be obedient in prayer for all men as we reflect your heart desire for all to be saved. Use us today. Transform our church into a church that prays for the lost. Give us a passion and a fervent desire and urgency in our soul to go to them and proclaim to them the truth. We pray that you use us as your instruments and glorify yourself through us. In Jesus' name, amen.